preaching and receiving of God's Word. Brooke family, let me ask you today, who is at the right address this morning? We are grateful you are here on a special day for us as a church. Man, it is, uh, it is so sweet, man. It's so sweet to be here with you guys and to just spend some time reflecting, man, um, on all that God has done since 2013, our launch in October, on October 6, 2013. We have a lot of things to thank God for. We have a lot of things to thank God for. I remember still that first Sunday, um, how tired I was after service. I literally went home and fell asleep on our boys' bedroom floor. I don't remember why I slept there. Uh, all I remember that Erica posted a picture of me wiped out, and that's like the only memory I've got. I remember there was so much buildup and anticipation to that day, that launch. But then I remember having that feeling afterward like, okay, now what? We started, and I remember that the thought hit me, this is going to go on every single Sunday until I die. <laughs> and so that was a bit overwhelming. Uh, but man, it, it, it's, it's also been filled with just so many, so many sweet things. Uh, it is six years that the Brook has been here. And what I, I want to do is just briefly, before I get even into my sermon, uh, I want to do some reflecting, reflecting with you guys. Some of you have heard this story of the brook a lot of times. You probably could tell it better than I could. And others of you are still wondering, like, so, okay, how did this all happen? Like, how'd you get this building? What are you doing here? You know, that kind of thing. And I just want you to know that we're here today because there were people who cared more about what God said than what people would say. There, we are here today because there were people whose names I don't know and whose faces I've never seen that said, we want to do what pleases God even when it doesn't make sense. There were people who had a vision for this neighborhood before Bell Park existed, literally. In fact, those same people made it a point that no houses would be built at Bell Park because they wanted a park district there for mission. There were people who served faithfully to build this building, built the gym, after they had previously built a literally uh, uh, kind of a, a mail-to uh, building that came from Sears. They built it out back. That was their temporary abode until this was built. And those same people loved the Lord. Their names will be forgotten in history, just like mine and yours will be for the most part. And, uh, but what name is not forgotten, family? I don't know if you guys remember that name because it's a little quiet in here, man. What name will never be forgotten here? Scripture says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Family, uh, let, let the world forget the brook. That's all right. It's all right if they forget Eric Rivera. It's all right if they forget you, but let them never forget Jesus. Let them never forget Jesus. We praise God for these six years. And here are six praises I've got. I've got more than six, but we've only been six years. I have to wait for our 100th anniversary to give all the other ones. I praise God that he speaks loudly to dull and very tentative ears. I just thank God that he is persistent when we are dull. 
You know, what happened was uh, Grace Evangelical Free Church was the name of this church previously. And uh, over different years, they've had experienced various hardships, and they were a church on decline. And they realized, they came to this very honest moment in their church's existence in 2012, where they were without a pastor, their church body was, was small, just a couple dozen people. Financially, they didn't have the funds to, to really hire a new pastor. Uh, they didn't have a lot of vision. They just didn't have a lot. And they just said, you know, we just got to close. But they, what they did was they came to the Evangelical Free Church of America, which we are a part of, and they said, what are our options? And the Free Church was bold. They cared more about what God said. And they said, what if you guys gave your building and all your assets to a new church to start a new work there on that corner? That's bold. And even more bolder was the people said, that's good, let's do that. They handed over their church building, their $60,000 bank account, the parsonage that Erica and I currently live in, and they said, we're going to give it to a perfect stranger because we believe one thing here, that the good news of Jesus will shine at this corner. And they spoke, yeah. Amen. Let's give God glory for that. They were not slow to listen to God. That same year, 2012 in June or July, I went out to coffee with Rick Thompson, who was on this video. And, and I told you guys before, I went out to, to meet with Rick at Starbucks on Irving Park and I think Keeler or Kenneth or one of those K streets. And and basically, I just like, hey, I wanted to pick his brain. I was an associate pastor at Good News Bible Church, and I just wanted to learn about discipleship. I was trying to grow, and, and he, we were talking about it, and all of a sudden, the conversation shifted in ways I didn't expect. And he said, hey, Eric, there's a church on the corner of Oak Park and Barry. They were closing their doors, or they've got a building, and they're going to hand it over to a church planter. Would you be interested in that? Would you consider applying for that? And you know many of you have heard my answer was a resounding no. I wanted nothing to do with Montclair, <laughs> the Montclair neighborhood. And in one part, uh, Erica and I were at a phase in life where we were, we were super comfortable. Um, I, I, had a, I had a salary. <laughs> um, it wasn't a great one, but it was fun. I was in school. Erica was pregnant for Levi, like, like pregnant, pregnant, like he was due in two months. And we're just thinking like, you know, it's just not a good time. Plus, the Montclair neighborhood is not the kind of community we envision ourselves in long term. No, we're not interested. And Rick told me the very thing that many of you have heard me say is, he said, would you at least pray about it? And I've told you before that as a pastor, you never could say no to that, that question. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to pray about it. So I told him yes, and I went home, and I didn't pray about it like many of us often do until the Holy Spirit began to really nudge in my heart and say, hey, you said you'd pray about it. I was dull. My ears were tentative, and God's voice was louder, and he began to put it on mine and Erica's heart to pray. And as we began to pray, the craziest thing started happening. We actually started having a burden for this place. Not this building. We hadn't ever even been in this building. But this neighborhood. I've told you guys before that we, took, we drove over here, Erica now, uh, like nine months pregnant or just about with Levi. We came here to do a prayer walk. It was about a block long because she got tired. So we got back in the car, did a prayer drive. We saw Bell Park, kitty corner from this building. We're like, man, what if that was a place that God used us to invade with the gospel? 
And we saw Locke Elementary School two blocks over, like, over 1,100 kids right there. They come from somewhere. Then we looked at Steinmetz High School four blocks to our east and another 1,200, 1,300 students. We see the brickyard where people gather, the mall, and then we saw Shabona Park and Sayre Park and Reese Park, and we're like, this is a gold mine. We began to do some demographic studies and saw that 44,000 people live within a one-mile radius of where you're sitting right now. And God gave our dull ears the ears to hear. I praise God that he speaks louder than our dull ears. Secondly, I praise God for our first core team of people. In God's providence, uh, J.J. and Sonette Pacheco, I just bought a house in Portage Park, and we're drifting this way, not even knowing that God was actually pulling them this way. He burdened them to join the team, and Pastor Jeremy Barahona, the five of us left Good News Bible Church with their blessing, and and we came here, and we're surprised to find people actually who are part of the old church who actually caught a vision for this. Javier, Kristen Val, Javier, Karen Haloka, and uh, Natalia and Hermie de la Cruz, and others who have come and since have left the brook and maybe traveled or moved out of state. But they, they took a faith step as well. And I praise God for them because they are the first prayers answered. <laughs> yeah. I've told you guys, the scariest thing was leaving what we knew. Erica was born and raised at Good News. I was a pastor there for five years. I was disciple and mentored there. I just, it was comfortable. And we've all been in places like that. And when God uproots us, it is scary. And we just kept wondering, God, we love it here. This is our family. Can you start a new family in a new place with people we don't know? (laughs) And you're a family. Praise the Lord, man. You guys are our family. I'm going to move on because I'm going to lose it if I keep in that point there. (laughs) Thirdly, I praise God for this community. I mentioned you, 44,000 people live within a one-mile radius of where you sit. Maybe you live within a a one-mile radius of where you're sitting. And maybe God has saved you with the gospel within these six years. There are 171,000 people within a two-mile radius and over 300,000 over a three-mile radius. I thank God for a ripe harvest here. And family, it is always true that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. But I see God raising us up, fam. Yeah. Fourth thing, I thank God, I praise God, for those who've caught his vision here. It started with an initial core team. But man, we got some white flag worshipers here at the brook who've raised their white flag and surrendered to Jesus because they've caught God's vision of salvation through him. They've caught the vision to make disciples. They are real community leaders. They are children, brook kids, teachers. They are hospitality team members. They are coaches in a baseball league. God has raised up people who've caught a vision for greeting others with the love of Jesus, for preparing this building for worship on Sunday gatherings, hosting people in their homes. 
God has put that vision in people's hearts. We are mere mouthpieces. God is the message. Fifthly, this ought to be the first one, but it didn't work as well sequentially. I praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the one that changes lives. This word is nonsense without the resurrection of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This pulpit is futile without Jesus. Those chairs are meaningless without Jesus. But we have Jesus who is risen, conquered sin and death and sits on his throne and will come back. And it is he who changes life now and forever and deserves all the glory, family. Let's give him praise for that. Yeah. Hallelujah. And sixthly, I just praise God for the crazy testimonies here. I think about our baptism Sundays. I think about our child dedications. I think about our covenant family. I think of those who were enemies of the cross. And our sons and daughters. God is amazing. And I just give him all the praise for these six years. Man, I just, I don't want it to ever be about us, family, but about Jesus. And I look around this room, and I see some who've been here since day one, some who've, today is day one. <laughs> and that's what it's about. And God's going to keep doing it. And I just need to throw a plug in, fam. We can't ever be comfortable. We've got to plant churches in new neighborhoods we got to multiply missional and real communities. Our work is not done because God's work is not done. And so we join with him in this work. It all took place because people that we don't know cared more about what God had to say. Today we're going to start a new message series from the book of First and Second Samuel. And we're going to study the life of David, a man who cared more about what God had to say about him at his best moments. And in his worst moments, followed his own sinful heart. What I love about King David is he's a man who's just like you and I are. And he's a man that we could learn from. Before I get into that, um, I just need to put on this, um, uh, this medal. So here's the irony. I forgot my medal at home. And so I told Erica to bring me my medal but she brought me my father-in-law's third-place medal. Now, she, she didn't bring me my gold medal. She brought the bronze medal. So a uh, change of plans. Um, I, I don't need this thing here, you know. Um, where, where's my green tea mat? My, my, my gold medal green tea. All right. For y'all don't know, uh, the men's retreat was two weekends ago, and um, our team naturally won it all. I mean, I mean naturally. All right. That had nothing to do with my sermon. <laughs> this next point does, is oddly enough, um, because I caved in last night. I, I turned on my heater. You know, it didn't feel right. Air conditioner on Wednesday and heater on Saturday. But I, I had to do it. 
And as, even as I was turning on my thermostat, I was thinking about some of the men here. And I was just hoping my man card would not get revoked, first of all. Um, I, I was hoping you guys wouldn't look down on me or judge me. I, I cared a lot about what you had to say about me. We've got to be people who care about what God has to say about us. God cares about what, more about what's in you than what's on the outside, family. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's a message that King David, or David, understood before he became king. See, in our message series, as we start today, we're going to look at the life of David, and we're going to see him from his very beginnings as God called him to be a man who led God's people. What we see in David is something we've got to learn is that at the end of the day, God wants all of us, Brooke family. He doesn't want us to simply look like we've got it together on the outside. He wants us to be relying entirely on Jesus from the inside, fam. We've got to just care more about that than what others think. You see, the whole story of 1 and 2 Samuel has to do with the beginning of Israel's monarchy. It is the beginning of when God's people told God, we don't want you to be our leader any longer. We want a new king like the rest of the nations, the rest of the peoples to lead us. We want a king who's going to be physically there in front of us as we go off into the battlefield. We want a king who's going to represent us in front of others. And Samuel, God's prophet, the judge in Israel, took that as a personal slight when God said, hey, Samuel, look it. They've rejected me not you. And so what God did, he gave them the king of their own heart, a guy named Saul, a man of great stature, physical presence. But we find in King Saul is he's a man who had no heart. He was not a man devoted to God. He was on the fence. He cared, though, more about what people had to say about him. Two Sundays ago, we had a guest preacher that looked identical to me. His name was Samuel the prophet. If you didn't get that, you'll check out the sermon two weeks ago. We saw in 1 Samuel 15 that King Saul worried about what people were going to say if he obeyed God. And he chooses to spare this, this this spoil from this military conquest when God said to destroy it all. And he kept saying the people wanted that. The people wanted that. And at the end of the day, he feared the people more than he feared God. And so what God does at the end of 1 Samuel 15, he says, Saul, because you've rejected me, I've rejected you from being king. And I'm going to raise up one better than you. And Samuel the prophet then walks away from Saul, grieved to his core that Saul cared more about others than about God. And in 1 Samuel 16, Saul has gone about his, Samuel has gone about his days grieving, just so sad about Saul's choice. And just even that, family, should be enough to cause us in our hearts to think, what do I care most about? I mean, at the end of the day, what matters most to you? Is it the persona that you give? Or is it the person that you are? And is the person that you are found in who God wants you to be? This is what we see here in 1 Samuel 16, because God has a plan to bring up a new king. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 
through 7. And I'm going to invite you, if you could, would you please stand with me as I read God's word here? If you don't own a Bible, and we sound like a broken record, family, what do we do? What do we say? Take it. Yes, if you don't own a Bible, take the one in front of you in the chair. It's a blue one. Consider that our gift to you. We want you to have God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and in that blue Bible, can someone tell me what page we're on? 238. Join us there. This is what God's word says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Note this. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling. And they said, do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. There I am in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Can you say outward appearance? But the Lord looks on the heart. Can you say on the heart? This is God's word. Father, we just pray that you would speak through me in the time we have remaining. And God, I pray that all of us would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you'd want us to hear and see. God, I pray that we would care more about what you have to say, that we remember that you see the heart. And God, I pray that our desire would be to have a heart aligned with yours. God, we pray the same for all the churches in our community. I thank you for the partnership we have in the gospel of Jesus. From those who are on the screen during that video to those who are on this neighborhood, in this neighborhood, God, I just thank you that we are one church. Jesus, you are our pastor, and we submit ourselves to you and the authority of your word. I pray you would speak through us and speak to us even now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Samuel goes to a city called Bethlehem because God tells him to. God says, Samuel, quit your grieving. You got to move on. I've rejected Saul. I'm starting something new here. I want you to go to Bethlehem because there in Bethlehem, there's a king. There's a king that is awaiting you to anoint him. God says, I provided him for myself. Where God gave Israel a king after their own heart, God says, I will now raise up a king after my own heart. And so Samuel goes to this city of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. It's a small, obscure city. It was known to the people of Israel, but it wasn't a bustling center. It wasn't the kind of place people went on vacation to. 
And so when the people of Bethlehem saw Samuel arriving to their city, they said, it says they began to what? Do you remember? They began to fear. They began to tremble at the sight of Samuel's presence. And there's at least one of two reasons why they began to tremble. The first one is they know that Samuel and Saul, the king, were at odds with one another. Samuel just told them, God's rejected you. But guess what? Saul continues to be the king, which is an interesting note, huh? A person may be rejected by God and still be accepted by people. That's what Warren Wearsby says. And that was Saul's case. Rejected by God, accepted by the people. And Samuel's like, look, if I go to Bethlehem, Saul might kill me. The people of Bethlehem see Samuel coming and they're like, Samuel, you're coming here. What are you coming? Good news, bad news? Because I know Saul's mad at you. Are we going to be like, you know, hurt here because of you? And so they say, for what reason are you coming? He says, I come peacefully. I also wonder if they're, they're worrying like, Samuel, I know no one comes to Bethlehem on vacation. You are the judge over Israel. You're either coming for good or for harm. And there's really not much good here to come for. So are you coming for harm? But Samuel assures them he's come for a good reason, to sacrifice to the Lord. But he gives them specific instructions. They need a man by the name of Jesse to come and bring his sons. So in verse 6, this is precisely what happens. Samuel presents his sacrifice, and Jesse and his sons come to the sacrifice. Samuel knows he's there to find the new king. Jesse, though, and his sons may not be aware of what Samuel's there for. So Samuel naturally looks for Jesse's oldest son. It's a man by the name of Eliab. And it says here that Samuel thinks to himself, surely in verse 6, the Lord's anointed is before him. He's like, this has got to be the new king. And why is that? We find out a moment later, he's got the appearance of a king. He's tall. He's got height. He's got stature. The dude's like Dwayne Johnson, perhaps, right? And Samuel's like, clearly, this is the kind of people, our pe- the kind of guy our people need to follow. But what's about to follow here is an important lesson that sets the rest of this book in its direction. God issues a rebuke to Samuel in verse 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. It's kind of like, hey, how did that work out with Saul, Samuel? That didn't work out so good. You're going to repeat this? But then God tells him these beautiful words. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God drops something important here. He's like, look, Samuel. I care about what's more on the inside than what's on the outside. I care about what's there within, not on what's without. And so he tells him, look deeper here. It's interesting that he says, the Lord sees. See, the Lord is the name Yahweh. It is the name of the, uh, the self-existent one, the self-existent God of eternity. And he knows everything. God never finds out, family. He, he never learned. He never discovered. He is 
omniscient, which is a a big word for all-knowing. He sees everything. And God sees into the hearts far far before x-rays, CT scans, MRIs. God sees the heart. He sees inside of what's going on. He knows you and me better than you and I know ourselves. And so he tells Samuel to not get caught up with exteriors. As I see this statement by God, I'm, I'm really struck because I know that at the core of us, we really actually care about the outward appearance. In fact, most of us, if we're honest, will say that we care more often about our external than we do our internal. And I'm starting to wonder, why is that? Because, you know, the truth of the matter is our outward appearance, our outward persona could be very misleading. I know the Proverbs says in Proverbs 31, the charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. Don't get caught up in exterior, but the heart. God often says to not rely on our strength, but to rely on him. And yet we go on oftentimes looking at externals. So I want to take this principle here that we see and we learn from King David. And I want us to begin to think about our lives. How do we operate by what we see as opposed to what's beneath the surface? I want to speak even for this moment and take this principle, this truth of David here that that God's about to unfold in a moment I'm going to do. But talk about even things like relationships. I want to talk about the way that we often pursue relationships, especially for those who are single looking for uh, romantic relationships. Because pursuing pretty often produces pain, doesn't it? It does. When you follow fine, you will find frustration. Because in and of itself, it doesn't say anything about the heart. And so God's like, you got to see deeper. Now, there's nothing wrong with the externals in and of themselves. We'll see that more in a moment. But we have to be people, for those especially here who are single, if you're looking for a relationship, look for the heart. Look for a man or a woman who fears the Lord more than they will ever fear anything else. One who loves God more than they will ever love you. That, that's this principle in action. For those who are married here, I think we often feel pressure to give a persona that our marriages are better than they are. And, you know, social media has a way of doing this to all of us, doesn't it? I mean, the very fact that there's such a thing as filters tells us that they are there to make things look better than they are. And so, even in marriage relationships, I want to get super real here. For for you marrieds, don't put more effort in giving the appearance of having a good marriage than putting the work into having a good marriage. I mean, I I know it's good good to, to post and it's good to do these things. Look, Hear me out. But don't ever put more work in that than praying for your husband or wife, than seeking counsel for your marriage, than getting God's word for your marriage. And I say the same for singles. Don't, don't, don't put more effort in making yourself look available than you are cultivating your own heart. You see, the externals are super enticing. 
And family, if I'm honest, I, 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 I often feel this, this tension in my heart, even as a, as a pastor to this church, because I don't want to ever give the appearance that the brook is doing great if we're not. I, I don't want to just have people get this idea that we are faithful to Jesus if that's not really what's happening. And so that's a heart check for me as, as a leader, for our, our leadership, and I hope for all of us. Let me say, God, I, I pray that as a church, that I pray that as individuals, as men and women, as youth, that we would say, God, I want it to be first, that my heart cares more about you than what anyone else thinks. You see, family, because when, when we operate from there, God's going to use us. You're here today because people cared more about what God thought than what others thought. See, public persona never overcomes internal reality. And so what Samuel is here doing is he's looking at Eliab. He got things twisted. He didn't look for the heart. But I love what he says here. God says, God sees not as man sees. See, God doesn't do things the way people do things because God's, God sees things people can't see. God doesn't operate the way we do because he knows things we don't know. So why do we keep doing this? Or what should we do instead? See, if God sees the heart and he knows everything, surely we could trust, trust him because he knows it. That alone should cause us to hold up our hands and say, God, have your way with us. But I think we're so drawn to appearance because it's more tangible. We're, we're drawn to externals because it's evidence right before us. It is walking by sight over faith. And I think we do that and we care more about our externals because we're just honestly very insecure. We could be so insecure as individuals. We played a comparison game. Everyone else looks so happy. I got to match that. We fear people. We're people pleasers. Maybe something we've been raised in a background where that's all we've been fed is to care what people think of you and everything you can self-preserve. Last weekend, Erica and I were doing a, a marriage getaway in Delray, Florida. It is straight up one of the most wealthy places I have ever been in my life. I mean, it had it all together on the outside. I saw Maseratis, Bentleys, Lamborghinis, and a whole lot of plastic surgery. <laughs> we, we saw wealth. We, we, saw, we saw just fashion, high-end restaurants. And it's so easy to, to see that and be very caught up with it. But you know, at the same time, as you take a step back, you say, man, there's there's hurt and heartache here. There's, a, there's a, a pursuit of giving a persona, but what's going in the heart? And I don't say that to judge because I'm just as guilty of caring so much about me. And I know you are as well. And if you're saying you're not, you're lying. We care so much. And we put this emphasis. So how do we cultivate a heart that puts God first? I'm going to keep lingering here because this is an important point that God makes in the story of David's life. 
I want to give you guys just real quick five ways to cultivate your heart over and above putting it, putting your externals in front of it, your appearance in front of it, the persona you're giving. The first thing I want you to remember, fam, is to first be aware and know your heart. Sometimes we think we know our, our hearts and we actually we don't. In fact, Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There, there is deception in our heart. So the first thing, first way we cultivate, cultivate a heart is to know its potential for evil and for good. The second thing is to care more about what God says. I made this my intentional repeti- repeti- uh, repetition here. But Galatians 1.10, you can write that reference down. Paul says, if I care more about what people say, I would not be a servant of Christ. But as a servant of Christ, I care more about what God says. Now, how do we become aware and care more about what God says? Well, thirdly, we walk with the posture of repentance. We say, God, when we see our hearts and we see it's filled, we say, God, forgive me. God, I'm so sorry. I, I, I see what my heart does. Jesus says, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So instead, we pray like Psalm 139, verses 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there are any grievous way in me and lead me into way everlasting. That's, that's repentance. It's, it's seeing the sin. It's seeing in our hearts the ugly and turning away from that and turning to God and saying, God, cultivate this heart of mine. The fourth thing then is to walk guarding your heart. Proverbs 4 verses 23 to 27 says, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. We guard our hearts by getting in the word, by being in prayer, by listening to the spirit and being obedient. We've created a a devotional series to go in line with this message series on the life of David. And we're going to be, we, some of you have already received it. We're going to be sending it out in mass email this week. We're posting it wherever we can. Uh, it's a digital Life of David series. We want you to take that and use that for your quiet times to, to grow in your faith in Jesus, cultivating this heart as we study and learn from David's life. The fifth thing, the fifth way we cultivate a heart is to get accountability. Get accountability. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, what? So one man sharpens another. We need each other. Or as James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a remarkable verse. God has a power to forgive our sins, doesn't he? And some of us, maybe you've come out of a Catholic background and you're used to or have been taught to Confess your sins to a priest. And, and as you come to see the faith in Jesus, you realize, I can go straight to God. Why do I need to go to a mediator? Between, between, I have a mediator. His name is Jesus, right? And that's the right thing. We confess our sins to God. But sometimes we go the wrong extreme and no longer confess our sins to one another. There is a beautiful power when you go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, man, I need to confess to you something I did, something I said. And you confess your sins to them And it's just as beautiful to hear them respond. The Lord forgives you. Walk by the power of the cross. See, we need a kind of accountability to cultivate these hearts of ours. 
So we need to be aware of our hearts, care more about what God says, repent frequently, often, daily, guard our hearts through his word and prayer by the power of the Spirit, and be accountable to other people. See, people look at the outward appearance, but God cares about your heart. He cares about it. So what happens to Samuel after God calls out his error here, looking at Eliab, the oldest brother, the Dwayne Johnson of the family? Well, naturally, Samuel goes to the second oldest, who's probably the second biggest, Aminadab. And God says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So what would Samuel do? Well, he'd go to the third oldest, Shema. And what does God say? No, not that one either. And then to the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh oldest. And all of those got the answer, no, that's not the one. That's not the next king of Israel. And I've told you before in the Bible, the number seven is a number of completion. But God often throws an eighth in there, a kind of new beginning or sometimes another curveball. And with Samuel is there standing with Jesse and like, all right, Jesse, you've brought me all your sons, your, your seven sons here. God is saying no to all of these. None of these are God's chosen one. And then Samuel asked, is there yet another? He says in verse 11, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's out busy. He's out back. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. This is urgent. So they run off and get David, whose name is still not mentioned here. And David comes, and we're given this description of him in verse 12. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And you're like, hold on. This whole sermon is about not caring about appearances, and you bring me this handsome young man who's got this brownish, bronzish skin. What's going on here? Well, the problem isn't in the externals in and of themselves, but it's the externals without the heart. And so we learn in chapter, later on in chapter 16, when someone describes David, they says, and the Lord was with him. Boom. And the Lord was with him. You see, God looked at this young man's heart, and he says, Samuel, that's the one. That's the one I've chosen That's why I sent you to Bethlehem to take this boy and make him a king. Go, therefore, and anoint him, for this is he. Samuel pulls out the horn filled with oil, pours it over his head, anoints him as the king, which, by the way, is a risky thing when there already is a king. But then we're told in verse 13, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. From that day forward. The rest of 1 Samuel, we see a David who's an imperfect man, but a man who listened to the Spirit of God. Later in his life, he he gets off track, but then comes back saying, God, I need you. We see even in Psalm 51, David realizes the gift of the Spirit in him. And he says, don't take your spirit from me. Because in the Old Testament church family, the Holy Spirit would come on someone temporarily, Only a few had the Spirit permanently, which is why as followers of Jesus, we're given the promise of the Holy Spirit to be our seal and guarantee who would never leave us. I mean, we are all like David in this way. Wow. 
And here David is, ready to move on as the king of Israel, empowered by the Spirit. Family, as we as a church move forward, I want us to be a Spirit-filled church. Yes, the Spirit indwells us. The Bible tells us that. But as we obey Jesus, the Spirit gets, he gets more of us. We, we say, God, have your way with me. And that's the heart work that he does. And this is what we want to see happen. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, this past week, man, media went wild over a picture of a heart that was radically transformed by God. A year ago in September, Botham Jean was killed by a police officer after her 13-hour shift. She got off on the wrong floor in Texas, in Dallas. She walked into an apartment she thought was her own, but it belonged to someone else. She saw a man coming toward her, thinking he was an intruder, shoots and kills both and John. You guys know this. What a tragedy. It's a heartbreaking story. Nobody wins. Everyone's hurt. As the trial went on, it wasn't very long. The evidence was before. This past week, Botham's brother, Brand, gave a closing statement. See, something I didn't come to really realize was that Botham was a devoted follower of Jesus. And everybody who knew him knew that. But not only Botham was a follower, but even his 18-year-old brother, Brand. And as this young man is in the court looking at his brother's murderer, killer, even though it was not intentional, this is what happened. He tells her this. I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And then he tells her, I love you just like anyone else, and I'm not going to hope you rot and die. I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want for you. Give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing both of them would want for you. Family, that is mind-blowing. And it seems as we learn more that this young man had a faith that was cultivated in the heart. A young man who cared more about what God had to say than what others not even knowing how his statement would be received. But he knew he needed to show her the love of Jesus and tell her to go to Jesus. How can we have this kind of heart, family? What I love about David's life is something that it does for us. You see, Samuel was told to go to Bethlehem to find something that would give hope for Israel. And ultimately, the way that we have a heart that's cultivated like this is we've got to go to Bethlehem and find a king there as well. Not just any ordinary king, not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all kings who would be born in Bethlehem a thousand years later. He would be anointed, but not just anointed to serve a temporary reign, but anointed as Messiah, which means anointed one. 
Jesus the Christ. And he would go by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a perfect life without sin. And he too would be faithful to his sheep. And he too would then be entrusted a kingdom. And at that cross, our King Jesus, the one from Bethlehem, would take the sin that's in your heart and the sin that's in my heart, our concerns about externals, our living for the praises and pleasures of people, he would take those sins and put them on his shoulder and in exchange give us his righteousness, his holiness, and then give us a new heart. He could take a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh for his glory and his glory alone. So we too look to Bethlehem to learn to forgive our enemies, to love our neighbors, to walk by the Spirit, to be on mission, to walk with the joy of Jesus. All this by our God. So family, let's remember as we go on six years more, 60 years more, as John Dennis said, 600 years more if Jesus decides to take that long. And let's do so with a heart fully devoted to Jesus for his glory and for the good of others who have yet to hear him, who are awaiting our being messengers with God's message. To God be the glory, family. Amen. Father in heaven, We just come, Lord, and we just say, have your way with us, God. We thank you, Lord, for our great King of kings, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one who died in our place and rose from the dead. God, I pray for any who are here today who have never put their faith in him, that today would be that day of salvation, Lord. I pray for that man or woman who's here, that youth who just realizes that they're living for other people, and they're just tired of it, God. They realize that people's praises are as fleeting as a fog on a foggy day, which comes and goes. And God, I pray that they would say, God, I want to care more about you. And so, Lord, even as our prayer team comes up, I ask, God, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would give us joy. For those who needed to hear that today, whose hearts are just struggling, but they needed that reminder, God, would you lift them up, God? God, for those who are so insecure, would you give them strength, God? Remind them of who they are, Lord. And God, for all of us, may we do your work with boldness and courage for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, let's stand up. Let's sing this song as a a prayer that comes from the depth of our heart. It says, I give myself away so you could use me. Now, don't don't sing those words if that's not the truthfulness of where you're at. And I, I mean that. I'd rather this room be silent.